0: Jessica Chaffin, Hello. Hello. How
1: are you enjoying Christmas in London?
0: Um, I enjoyed the build-up to Christmas in London, and then now it's kind of that, it's the morning after, it seems like. It's that morning after uh, effect where everything that looked so shiny and bright, you know, in the in the sort of build-up to the dance now looks like, oof, boy, <laughs> is that who I ended up with? Nah, it's okay, but uh, it was fun while it lasted. I- so
1: you're here doing shows at the Soho Theatre. I am, yeah. With... It's Ronna and Beverly. Do you want to just explain?
0: Um, My partner Jamie Dunbow and I do a show called Ronna and Beverly and it's basically a live chat show where we play these two 53-year-old... Jewish women. We are not 53. We are about 20 years younger than 53.
1: Are you both Jewish? We are, yeah. Okay.
0: Which I think, I love it when people ask that question. Sometimes after the show, a couple of people have said like, oh, I didn't realize you were Jewish. And it's like, well, then that's basically the most anti-Semitic minstrel show you've ever seen. But when you are Jewish, you can pretend to be Jewish as well.
1: I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com, and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long form interviews with stand up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic The World's Best Stand Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. And so it's a chat show but you sort of grill your guests in We purport to be relationship experts.
0: We've written a book called You'll do a little better next time, a guide to marriage and remarriage for Jewish singles, but as my character Rana always tells everyone, it says Jewish in the name but it's for everyone, you know, you're married, you're not married. Um, you're thinking about being married, you're thinking about not being married, you know, it's that's it's sort of like anyone we try to anyone Living, breathing, could buy this book. And so I think the thing that's appealing about the show, or at least what's appealing about doing the show, is we, you know, it's a chat show and we talk to celebrities or celebrity ish people.
1: So, like this run already, you've had Matt Lucas in and yeah. Stephen
0: Merchant. Matt Lucas, Stephen Merchant, Chris O'Dowd. Who else? Other, all kinds of good people we've had. Oh, Blake Harrison from The In Betweeners um, was lovely. And uh, yes, yeah, so we've actually had a great array of guests. but So I should say actual celebrities in this instance, not sort of celebrities. So basically, we use this conceit to talk to them about almost anything except the projects that they're normally plugging. So it's not like, you know, when somebody has a movie coming out or whatever, they go on 10 different chat shows and tell the same story in 10 different ways or whatever. This is always about something completely out of left field. And I think that's the fun because they sort of are disarmed and have to respond as themselves as opposed to like the coached version of themselves.
1: And do people generally take it quite well? Yeah, I mean, you know, our sort of key
0: to everything is that before people go on, we always say, is there anything you don't want to talk about? Cuz I for me personally, I wouldn't be thrilled if somebody put me in the hot seat and then humiliated me without my permission. Let's put it that way. And everyone is usually pretty open. But, you know, people might say, well, I did just get divorced. I'd rather not talk about that. And so then we talk about, you know, everything else in their life. Or or we ask them that question, and then they say no, and then we ask them again. Have you ever had any kind of awkward moments? The whole, <laughs> do You mean within one show? or I mean, ever, the show is all awkward moments. But we have had people on that didn't want to play along as much as others. I mean, we're sort of like Muppets. You know, you have to just accept our existence. You have to, you know, nobody says to Oscar the Grouch, you know, why do you live in a trash can and what's a grouch? You just say like, Hi Oscar, how are you today? You know, whatever. And so you have to accept kind of the rules of the universe and you sort of have to go with it. And whenever anybody tries to force either a persona or sometimes with comedians we have a problem where they try to sort of pipe their act into the responses and it's like, just you just have to kind of relax and go with it and realize that the audience is always on the side of the guest and always thinks that we're the fools, you know. Who's been your favorite guest? (sighs) Good question, though I will say in recent, when we had Simon Amstel, who was lovely, and it's funny because coming from America, we know something about some people and not so much about other people, and before we had Simon, people were like, ooh, he's sharp-tongued, watch out, you know, he can be a little prickly, or, you know, obviously that's his persona on Buzz Cox is kind of like the quick-witted response, and he could not have been... Sweeter and funnier. And and I guess with this new show that he has, Grandma's House, you sort of see that aspect. I mean, I think this dynamic is not something that he's totally unfamiliar with being harassed from either side by two older Jewish women. So I think it brought out a, a sweet, sweeter side in him. Um you started doing this
1: in LA. Yeah. Right, at the Upright Citizens Brigade. <laughs> exactly. We've had Dave Hill on the podcast before. He oh. does stuff at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. But do you want to just explain what it is? Sure, sure.
0: Well, actually my partner and I, Jamie, we both started at the UCB Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. And this is a theater, a comedy theater that was founded by some sort of ex improv olympic and second city people and what that means is that was sort of the breeding ground for saturday night live in its heyday and even now still but second city and improv olympic were sort of for in chicago and that was the breeding ground and they came to new york and they started this comedy theater the four of them and jamie and i just started taking classes there at the in the very early days and so we were lucky enough to have each of them um matt besser matt walsh ian roberts amy poehler who has obviously got a big movie career and, and comedy career now. And we had all of them as our instructors. So we are very lucky to kind of start in its nascent stages. And then always performed there, took classes there. It's actually how Jamie and I met. And then we moved to L.A. And then they opened a theater in L.A. And so it's all based in long form improv. And you, something like groundlings or character sketch stuff, some of that is more short form, so it's more like a game, or whose line is it anyway is a perfect example of short form. And this form is more, it's all about truth and comedy and long form kind of like letting the joke rise to the top as opposed to forcing it. And that has been an invaluable guide for us, or I guess... I mean, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing with our show, but we improvise probably 70% of our show, and every night, you know, whenever we do it, and it's different every night, and we always have new material, and so it's been great, and Dave is a big fixture on the sort of New York scene, and Jamie and I, having moved to LA, are, are sort of a signature show at the L.A. Theatre.
1: Why did you move to L.A.? Had you paired up by that point? No, we
0: we ended up doing... I mean, we've always been friends and known each other, but we actually had never... We'd performed together in sort of one-off things
1: before. Had you done any comedy before you did the UCB course?
0: Um, no, that's a good question, because I hadn't, and I always wanted to. I mean, it was one of those things where... I always wanted to be a performer, or actually wanted to be a stand. I mean, I was the sort of kid, everybody, all the comedians in America grew up watching Saturday Night Live and, you know, saying, I want to do that, I want to do that. But I was also a really big um, Richard Pryor fan as a kid. And also, um, I actually loved Robin Williams in his, da- in, in his coked up days when he was at his best, sadly. Um, but that kind of energy and sort of controlling the room like that. And it just was I come from a big family. There's six kids in my family, and I'm the fifth. So, I don't love to say, oh, it's birth order or, you know, I was desperate for attention or any, you know, I'm still desperate, obviously, if I've made a career out of it. But you, that sort of, it was very interesting to me. I've only ever known a big group dynamic as opposed to a small one. And that idea of kind of like owning the floor and whatever was always very attractive. And also, I just always loved character stuff. I mean, even from a young age, I had a good ear and always did accents and you know just for fun not to necessarily entertain other people
1: So you did the course at UCB
0: So I did the course at UCB and the great thing about UCB and actually I was discussing this with um, Humphrey Kerr the other night, do you know Humphrey? He's in the Penny Dreadfuls, it's a Sketch group and they um, he was a guest on the show the other night and he was saying that he'd gone to UCB in New York and was really impressed by the whole thing and really wanted to take some courses and that people were very accepting of sort of this guy coming from the outside you know that's always a big like what do you what's it like of being an American coming here what's it like being an English person coming there and obviously Americans are like the kids sisters or kid brothers of the English which is like we'll do anything to play with you you know like please come join our game we love you and then you know when we come here it's like get out of my room um, and then occasionally you get invited into the room so we have one foot in and out of our sister's room right now but Humphrey was saying how accepting they were and I said to him oddly because I always wanted to do comedy my brother moved to New York I had a couple of friends that were taking classes at the UCB I don't want to tell you the longest story in the world but I'll make it brief and these girls were taking classes, and I felt, I was like, I mean, I'm funnier than these girls. Like, what's wrong with me? What am I so scared of? And my brother was like, look, take this workshop, go take this workshop, and if you hate it, you never have to do it again. You know, not a big six-week course. It was like three hours on a Sunday. And I went, and because I was like a total simp and didn't realize that all these other people had been doing imp- you know, I probably thought I was in some sort of a, like, Workshop when you're 10 years old and your mother drops you off, and all these other people have been taking classes for like a couple of years or months or whatever it was. And I just loved it. And then I never stopped doing it. But the thing was, they never said to me, I kept waiting for the day at class where they said, So, what have you done before? Like, are you a stand up? Oh, have you ever been in a play at blah, blah, blah? And, you know, and I would have to say no, but secretly, I just always wanted to. You know, and now I'm going to leave. Like just that shame and humiliation. And nobody ever asked. And so because no one ever asked, I kept doing it. And probably they should have been smart enough to ask me that 10
1: years ago and I never would have come back. And so why did you guys move to L.A.?
0: I guess it's the inevitability of it all. You know, in New York, there is a production scene or whatever but it's just obviously there's so much more production in los angeles that's kind of the center of show business in america
1: when you say production do you mean to get on tv
0: yes like is that the The ultimate goal yeah um i mean yes of course now because that's i've chosen that this will be my career but for a very long time and when i was in new york i always had you know, I had a day job and then at night I would go and spend all of my time at the comedy theater. And, and that was always a big kind of conflict for me, like reconciling the idea of like a job job. And what was then, your job job? Um, I worked at Nickelodeon, uh, you know, the kids network. I was a producer in their online division and actually did very well at that job and was kind of moving up very quickly and... My parents, of course, my father... This is one of the key moments with my parents where you understand just how little they understand about either, like, what you want or who you are. And and I love my parents, and they're wonderful, but they're definitely from another generation. And my father was driving me to the airport one day, and he wanted to know why I couldn't just forget about all of this nonsense and go to Harvard Business School and basically run a Fortune 500 company. And it was like, oh, okay, so you think the numbers... For me to, like... I'll just go to Harvard Business School. I'll just run, you know, Procter & Gamble or whatever it is. And you're right. that Like, that's the other choice. They do have that much confidence in my at- intelligence and Which capability. is touching in a yeah. way. Yeah. You know, I was, was like, in some, there's a compliment in there. I know there is. <laughs> but this, forget it. Forget it. Yeah.
1: So you went through to L.A. And was it just like you turn up like, oh, here we are. And then you're back to doing crappy jobs. and Well,
0: or- yes. I mean, yes, but I think that the saving grace of the whole thing was that the UCB, That Bright Citizens Brigade, came and opened a theater there because I think what I really missed and yearned for was that community. And in New York, it was such a community. And you also realize in Los Angeles, and I'm sure in London, to some extent, it's the same, but performers really don't get to perform. Like you have all these friends that are actors and they're never working and they're just waiting for their number to come up. And as a comedian, you know, as a person who generates their own material and has to generate, I mean, maybe if I was six foot two and 112 pounds, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But as a person who has to write their own stuff in order to get to do it you have to work all the time. And this was a place where I could always get on stage and people appreciated the work that I was doing. And you realize how valuable that is. And I think about a year after I moved there, they opened the UCB in LA and then we took it from there and started performing at that theatre again.
1: No, we've had a few people on this podcast talking about the stand-up scene in LA and um, everyone seems to have a slightly different opinion on it, but something that, I can't remember if it was Dave Hill or if it was someone else, but they were saying that they found the difference between LA and, say, somewhere else like New York, is that somehow the audience is a bit more, it's a bit more like they're watching a film or something. It's a bit more like they come and they watch and they're not sort of as involved in it, maybe...
0: Um, That's interesting. It's interesting because there's definitely so many people from New York have transplanted to L.A. Like you sort of spent the first year or so being there, missing all your friends. And then within two years, everybody turned up and everybody's there now, you know. And so in a way, there is that huge transplantation. But I guess maybe a New York audience, you get more people who are just truly comedy nerds and truly come for the insider experience of, especially at a place like the UCB where because it's so improv and sketch based and alternative comedy based that you never know what you're going to see on a given night. You never know who's going to turn up. You never know if something really magical is going to happen and you got to be there. And I I actually think that was something in my early days that was so exciting and tantalizing and attractive about being there every night because you didn't know. It was a real education. But I think in LA unfortunately... And it's actually something that I really like, at least in my limited experience of being here. We did Edinburgh over the summer, and we did had done the show twice at the Soho Theatre in May, and now we obviously have been doing this show for a couple of weeks here. But that in L.A., people are so concerned about being judged, but it's this weird transaction of the entertainment business anyway, which is like, I want you to like me, I want you to judge me, because I want you to judge that I'm good, and then put me in something. And then the artist side of you is kind of like, well, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this show. Okay. I was like, I'm trying not to say shit and fuck for the last 20 minutes, Um, (laughs) which pretty much comprises my entire vocabulary. you've done very well. Unfortunately, I always joke that Rana has like an immensely amazing vocabulary. And for some reason, I have like 200 words, but the character is very smart. Um, But that you... Part of you wants to be like, well, go fuck yourself. Who cares what you think? And I'm just doing my thing. And there's a definitely, your brain is happening on two levels. And because you don't have that industry in New York, I don't think people are as uptight about what they'll allow themselves to do. And obviously the death of comedy is self-consciousness. Unless, of course, that's your persona. And even then you're controlling it. But the death of comedy is vanity or self-consciousness or whatever. And I think in New York, people feel like, they can be looser and dirtier, and in LA, it's a bit more of a transactional experience.
1: And how much is it kind of tied in together in terms of? I know that you've done bits on TV shows, like you you were on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and you've been on Entourage, and you had a part on um, quite a few episodes of Nine Hundred Two One
0: Zero. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the crowning achievement of my career.
1: But is that is it the comedians will do that, or is that kind of like an okay? This is my acting career, separate from my comedy.
0: Um. I guess everybody wants to be lucky enough to be able to do their own comedy, but it's very hard to be able to control your own voice and have your own thing and again I think that also kind of goes back to the Saturday Night Live school of thinking which is you have these characters or you have this this these jokes or this material or whatever that is your own and you hope that someday you get the Seinfeld show or the you know everybody loves Raymond show which is based on the material I don't know if people realize as much outside the business that Jerry Seinfeld was a a stand-up for 10 years or however long it was before he became got the Jerry Seinfeld show essentially and then got to be the TV version of Jerry Seinfeld. So I think that's what if you are a person who's a live performer if you are a person who's, you know, there are some actors that are just funny comedic actors and there's some people that are actively pursuing being on stage and doing either stand-up or improv or whatever like as much as they possibly can. And so I think that ultimately that's probably most people's goal but I think the You can't always get there. And so you have to kind of cultivate. I mean, for me, honestly, I'm not a person who is ever going to strike it big by auditioning for something and getting a part and then getting on a show. And part of that is because, again, I'm not six foot two and 112 pounds, but also because it's very hard for me. As a writer and as a sort of self generator of material, and this is definitely a big flaw that I have I think, um, so i 'll just be sure and announce that to the world, so nobody hires me ever again um, no really I'm, I'm, I can do whatever you need me to do is that you can't control your words and you can't control the experience and you can't and you get very used to that and it's a very it's a real aphrodisiac to be on stage and to be able to know that everything that you, especially with Jamie and I, she always compares it to being in a band. Like this must be the closest experience to being in like a jazz band or whatever, because we just riff off of each other all the time and always are aware where the other person is. And at the same time, it's like, you're not even thinking when it's happening. And so I think being kind of addicted to that feeling, but also wanting that to be your life or your career, which at this point, Jamie and I have been really lucky to get to do as much as we have with the show, that it's hard for me to plug in and be, I'm never probably going to be the mom, unless somebody does a super weird show with a crass, sassy mom, which maybe which, could happen, who knows.
1: You have a character on this teen sitcom. Oh, Zoe 101, is that what you're saying? Yeah, here? which is uh, Jamie Lynn Spears. It's <laughs> well, I was very
0: lucky though, because the guy who writes that show is a friend of mine. What's the premise of the... Um, it's. We used to have a show in America called Facts of Life, which took place at a girls' boarding school. And this one takes place at a co-ed boarding school in Malibu. And it's shot at Pepperdine, which, if you've ever been to L.A., is like the most stunning college campus. I mean, I don't know how anyone could ever get any work done, but it's basically like on the cliffs of Malibu. And so it's this real fantasy for tween girls of like, oh my God, I get to go away and have my own life. And it happens in like the California that people dream of that really only happens like the California dream you dream of is really like an eighth of a mile sliver between the ocean and, and the shore. And so Jamie Lynn plays Zoe, who's like the main character and all her little girls' relationships, they all like sort of spin off of each other, you know. My friend Dan Schneider is the creator of that show and he has a really strong comedic voice. And because he's a good friend of mine, I mean, I know I sound very composed and mature right now. I'm sure that people are very impressed with how mature I am. I'm like a real spaz. And basically... He used to just dare me to, you know, eat the hottest hot sauce in the world for 250 bucks or whatever. You know, I'd do it. I don't care. I'll do anything. So basically, he would just write me stuff that was like totally crazy and insane and out there because it was amusing to him to see me act like an idiot. And so consequently, I became Coco, who is the dorm advisor But the whole joke about Coco is that she's like, her life is a complete disaster. And she's always, the kids always have to give her advice and take care of her as opposed to the
1: other way around. So So Edinburgh, you did it this year. So Edinburgh was like the first time you did a run outside of L.A. in New York. And how did you find it? How did it compare?
0: Well, we really wanted to, I don't know, I always feel like I'm not great at explaining what our show is. And I know that it's sort of, I guess the comparisons here are Mrs. Merton or maybe even a Dame Edna like on our finest day and it, it is Dame Edna is one of those funny things that people feel like Ugh, I know what that is but if you actually watch Dame Edna it's like the sharpest funniest most amazing thing in the world so on a good day maybe we get compared to them uh, him rather or her rather Um, You choose, you choose. But uh, we really love that tradition here of that kind of a chat. We don't have those chat shows. We have talk shows, but we don't have a chat show where either a character-driven chat show or a show where you really do just chat about whatever for a length of time. And so we really wanted to see if our show would work over here, having been fans of that kind of a format and wanting, to be honest, the translation of our stage show to TV because... You know, sure, everybody wants a TV show or whatever, but that's the closest translation. And we so enjoy doing the stage show that it feels like, wow, if we could make that our actual jobs, wouldn't that be miraculous? So, Edinburgh seemed like a really important step. I mean, we both always wanted to go to Edinburgh, like before we ever started doing the show. It's just one of those kind of
1: holy grails for comedians. Is it, how well known is it outside of? The UK,
0: I think to, it's known the world over, of course, but I think to comedians who are in a more cerebral camp, maybe, or comedians that are comedy nerds themselves, that it's something that everybody would love to do. And it's a very hard, it's a very long distance. Like, it's not a kind of, what I mean by that is, it's not just like, oh, that would be fun. Let's enter and then we'll go and we'll do it in a flower shop. And I mean, it's an absolute... Slugfest. There are 2,500 shows and all this competition. And I did think, actually, that there would be more shows like our show. I was surprised at how much sort of like a man in a microphone the festival is. And I suppose because I was, as an outsider, again, thinking about the tradition of the thing and Monty Python and just the whole absurdity and surreality and the madness of that kind of comedy and the people that have come out of there. But... You don't realize how hard it is to get there or how easy it is, depending on who takes you, I suppose. And we were incredibly lucky. And Mick Perrin and uh, Lydia Hampson, who's our promoter at Mick Perrin, they just basically took us there and ran with it. And if we didn't have that kind of infrastructure or that kind of in, it would have been a complete waste of time. I mean, it would have been great to be in Edinburgh, which is like a completely magical place, but I don't know if anyone ever would have come to the show. So you have you realize how important it is to kind of meet the right people. I mean, I guess that's in any business. If you're selling insurance, you have to get in with the guy who sells the most insurance, I guess.
1: So you mentioned TV. You did a TV pilot. We did this TV pilot. And
0: when we were pitching the TV pilot, we were deciding, do we want to do a sitcom or do we want to do the chat show? The stage show started out as us being hosts of like a variety hour kind of. And then Jeff Garland from Curb Your Enthusiasm actually was kind of like our crossover Missing Link guest because one night he came on the show and he was a big fan of the show and very You know, really talked it up and very helpful and ended up being very helpful when we got to the Twitter end of things, which I'll explain in a second. But basically, Jeff came on one night. and I think he came from either a wedding or a bar mitzvah and he was wearing a um, tuxedo. And he basically said, you know what? I don't want to do my act. Can we just talk? That's my favorite part anyways, talking to you guys. So we were like, all right, fine. Because what we would do is we would interrupt the comedians in the way that your mother, you know, like listening to someone's act and say like, well, I, I... Wait a minute, back it up. I don't understand. Explain to me why it's funny for someone to have cancer on that. You know what I mean? Like, what your mother would wish she could say louder when she's watching something she doesn't understand. So Jeff was the first person that we just talked to and interviewed about his life and talked to about his life. And we realized that that was sort of the magic formula. And so in any event, when we went to pitch the show, we ended up doing it as a sitcom. And we shot a half-hour sitcom for Showtime. And um, Paul Feig directed it, who is a film director and has just done a movie with Chris O'Dowd and Matt Lucas. And he does Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks is essentially the story of his... he and Judd Apatow created that show together and he also was the sort of in-house director of the American office so there's all these sort of little crosses over which ended up being very helpful to us but in any event we we in any event I love that I just said that because that's something that Rana says all the time but (laughs) really it's just me with a different accent and a lot more authority but I have a good friend who as an aside uh the other day was telling someone else about the show, and he said, you know, I really prefer hanging out with Rana. I like to hang out with Rana better than I like hanging out with Chaff. And But the good news is, Chaff's just getting older, so she's just going to become Rana. And I was like, I kind of prefer hanging out with Rana, too. But Rana doesn't have the problems that I have, no. Um, and so uh, so anyway, we did this half-hour sitcom, and it was an incredibly amazing experience. Genji Cohen, who created Weeds, um, wrote it with us and we and Paul directed it and it was everyone always complains about oh we didn't get to do what we wanted blah 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 and we truly I think because Genji had a relationship with Showtime for so long and Paul was such a trusted creative director for them that we really got to do whatever we wanted and it was really this wonderful experience and kind of all through it people were saying oh it's they love it it's going to happen it's going to happen of course that's the same old story
1: I've seen there's a clip of it and it's really great and there is you know there is a thing often where I've seen so many pilots and first episodes where you're like i can kind of see what you were trying to do there but this hasn't translated but it is it's genuinely really funny it really works
0: thank you that's very nice of you to say um so showtime had this weird so they didn't pick up any shows that season we made a show matthew perry from friends made a show and tim robbins made a show and none of the shows got picked up which is as far as we know has never happened And so it seemed like people sort of said, you know, well, there's something going on at Showtime, there's something going on at CBS. Whether I know if that's true or not, we know we made it down to like it was us and one other one. And anyway, they didn't pick it up. But there was this sort of accounting snafu or not snafu, but exception, which is they air their pilots that they've made because if they air them I don't know what exactly how it works but they must get a better tax break if it actually airs as opposed to if it doesn't air. So they air them at like 3 o'clock in the morning and then I never heard we never heard anything from them about ratings you know we don't have, we have no idea who watched it or didn't watch it but I have to say these kind of Relationships get classified, the Davy and Goliathness of the whole, of the artist and the network, and the, it's so unfair what they've done to us, and our show would have been the greatest show on television, if only, you know, and that's always kind of the story. But at the end of the day, I mean, these people gave us, I don't know what, I mean, not this, but. A million dollars to, pl- to like go make a stupid movie that we had only spent probably four thousand dollars of our own money on in four years I mean the costumes we wear are the same costumes that we've worn since the beginning of our show and and because at the heart of it all is like me and Jamie making stuff up that's what we do is we play dress up and we play pretend and that's what we get to do for our job and so for them to actually say like here's some real money to do something real and make this thing and make it the way you want to make it I have Zero complaints. If anything, I am grateful. So it's a nice piece of material to have, but I certainly don't feel like, I don't begrudge any, you know. And actually, and the truth is, if I'm being honest, I would much rather do the show as a chat show. Like, I'm not grateful that it didn't get picked up. That's. I mean, I'm not some fool that's like, ah. Oh. Thank God I didn't get my own TV program. How tedious would that be? Um, but I think the thing that's special about what Jamie and I do is that dynamic, is that improvising, is that li- those live, totally unscripted moments that you have no idea. And it's a, at its hard. it's really just a big status game with these people who are supposed to be the most high status person in the room, the guest, and us kind of flipping it on its side. And to me, that's what's fun about it. So that's what I would prefer to do as opposed to, you know, given the choice of
1: both. Well, you're going to be doing it at the Soho Theatre till the 9th. Yeah. Do you know who the guests are coming up between now and then? Um, Sue Perkins is coming on January 4th, I think.
0: Tonight we have Anna Ortiz, who plays Hilda on uh, Ugly on Ugly Betty. Yeah, She's delightful. She's really fun and fun. I mean, obviously, she's great on the show, but she's like the prettiest little thing in the world. And Justin Kirk from Weeds is doing the show on the 9th of January. And... I know we have more big
1: people, but I can't think... Will Uh, you be putting it up on the Twitter?
0: Yes, well, Soho Theatre's been tweeting about it at Soho Theatre and we have at Rana and Beverly and we put it up on our... We have like a Facebook you know fan page or whatever
1: okay and your website where people can link through to all of this stuff is
0: rana and beverly.com but the best thing to do is go to facebook.com slash rana okay. and a-n-d rana and beverly
1: and beverly's spelt with an l-y not an l-e-y
0: i know which is a funny I people know, just love sort of... to add it add an e to yeah, it yeah yeah okay jessica
1: chaffin thanks so much oh thanks for having me Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Marin. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to yesyes marsha.com forward slash off the mic